Damen und Herren. This past few weeks has seen some incredible moments for feminism. Malala Yousafzai, a Pakistani girl shot in the head for her fight for girls' education, won the Nobel Peace Prize. And shortly after, a feminist critic of video games had to cancel her talk at an American university after receiving threats of a Montreal-style massacre if she spoke. So on this episode of Shtetl on the Shortwave, we're talking feminism, Gamergate, women in technology, and about a new Muslim-Jewish feminist alliance at a university here in Montreal. I'm your host, Tamara Kramer, and you can download this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave from iTunes or at shtetlmontreal.com. how much love people have shown me. Malala Day is not my day. Today is the day of every woman, every boy, and every girl who have raised their voice for their rights. So here I stand. So here I stand, one girl among many. I speak not for myself, but for those without voice can be heard. On the 9th of October, 2012, the Taliban shot me on the left side of my forehead. They shot my friends too. They thought that the bullet would silence us, but they failed. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born. Welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave today. I wanted to start off by playing a clip that I found really inspirational. Uh, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for the show this week, and there were so many messages being sent to me uh, from what was happening around me that it should be uh, a day to talk about feminism again. And that was such an inspiring speech by Malala, a young girl fighting for education at the same time as there are a lot of really scary things happening around women and public speech and education and equal rights. So today's show is uh, dedicated to that. And we're going to start by talking to two young women who have started a really interesting group at Concordia University here in Montreal. Uh, it's Haley Fersker and Yasmin Filali Baba, the two uh, Concordia students who started the Muslim Jewish Feminist Alliance. And they're here in the studio with me right now to talk about that. And so welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave. Hello. Thank, thank you, you for having us. So what was the impetus for starting this group? I guess I'll start. So it's, it's actually kind of interesting because I had just gotten back from Israel on an exchange and originally, the, or I, I was kind of trying to find someone to start an Arab-Jewish feminist alliance. Yasmin responded. We met up for coffee, and we felt kind of uncomfortable with that title. 
um the 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 whole issue of identity uh, uh, between Arab and Muslim or or Palestinian or uh, or um, Arab, we wanted to have a broader conversation uh, that would encompass those identities and but or or that would um, deal uh, with such a complex issue. We would make it more uh, from a, a religious identity perspective. So instead of Arab, we would go Muslim, and that would open up the conversation. Um, it would also delocalize it a bit, so it would be more. Uh, it would include uh, more feminism aspects, and also it would include a lot more people because it's not only Arabs that feel implicated, and I don't think it's not only Palestinians mm-hmm. that feel implicated. So yeah. Uh, also, you know, it kind of insinuated that I'm Israeli and I'm not. And yeah, and I'm Moroccan, not Palestinian. Okay, so it's yeah. really a Muslim-Jewish feminist alliance, right. but there is a f- also a focus on talking about issues of conflict in the Middle East? Yeah, because I think the the, the impetus, as you said, or the, the, the motive to start this conversation actually came from that because uh, I think Haley, being Jewish, has certain affinities to Israel, and me being... Um, uh, a Moroccan, Arab, uh, and Muslim, and I've visited um, Israel-Palestine recently. I that's where I get my inspiration to start this conversation to and be interested in Jewish feminism and in Jewish culture and identity. And Haley came up with this brilliant idea, and it just I don't know it it, it, it struck a chord. So how do you two know each other? We didn't. We didn't before this. Uh, we just put a call out on several Facebook groups, and Yasmin yeah. responded. We met up for coffee. And, and from there it went. Baruch yeah. Hashem, inshallah. Baruch Thank Hashem. God for Facebook. <laughs> I don't really believe that, but it, it, has, its, it has its uses. Uh, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, actually. Facebook and feminism could be a whole other show. But uh, clearly, in this instance, it brought two people together uh, on a great project. And I'm curious to know what are some of the issues that you hope to look at in the Muslim Jewish Feminist Alliance? Well, there's a whole bunch. We're we're still trying to figure that out. We don't want it to be uh, just us that decide that. We want it to be kind of a group decision. Um, and we also want to be proactive about something. What that something is, we don't know yet. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of issues that overlap in the Muslim and Jewish worlds with women and and you know, people in marginalized groups, and we want to look at those, as well as more secular feminist issues that we can we can explore a bit. What would be an example where, uh, Yasmin, where there's an overlap in, like, a, an issue that's relevant to a Muslim or and a Jewish woman? Um, I think lead in prayer. If we were to look at it in the religious context, um, so in sacred spaces where we women want leadership and want access to certain scriptures or to certain um, rituals in which they want to, you know, um, uh, either reform or at least lead or um, be implicated in, in that way. When, and when I was in, um, when I visited the, the, the wall or the waiting wall when I was there, I, uh, I was informed about this. There was uh, a group of women that would go and would impose themselves or, or say, no, this is my, um, uh, I, I am Jewish and I am, um, 
I'm practicing and I want to be part of this. And that's very inspiring. Um, uh, so at least in that perspective for me, I think uh, I want to explore that. Okay, the women of the wall, I think, is the yes, name of the group. Yeah, okay. yeah, thank you. Interesting. So leadership in, in prayer and, uh, and in, I guess, synagogues and mosques or in, in whichever way that you connect to your, to your faith or your religion, however you practice it, wanting to be able to have a leadership role, that's one right. issue in common. What else is there, Haley? It's funny. It's the, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is the issue of modesty, um, especially you know, in terms of appearance, how how women are supposed to dress, or or just uh, the idea of the male gaze being imposed on on women, and what that means for us in um, in our Jewish and Muslim communities, but also here in amongst uh, non-Jewish or non-Muslim people, um, especially in Quebec, with you know the recent charter, it's you can see it it taking a real uh, toll on the lived social realities of women, especially Muslim women. Um, mm-hmm. That's interesting to me. Modesty right? and dress and right. uh, how you want to represent yourself as a woman, whether yeah. it's modestly, quote unquote, or not, mm-hmm. or whether it's with a religious garb or not. Mm-hmm. Or Okay, interesting. Yeah. And so have you uh, had a good response to the Muslim Jewish uh, Feminist Alliance? What have people uh, responded to it, whether it's like students or people in your family? What, what's the response been? Um, mostly positive. I want to say that many, many people were excited um, and thought it was a brilliant idea. Uh, there were some that were pretty d- discouraging. Uh, either didn't think that it thought that it was um, not pretentious, but sort of for nothing. It was to, to make ourselves feel better or something, or that it was pointless. Uh, uh, or the, it was too big of, of, of a subject to, to even try to get an insight to. Mm-hmm. But um, I think personally my dad um, encouraged me a lot because there was a lot of times I was discouraged because some people thought that we were legitimizing um, narratives that they thought were oppressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was personally to me discouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise... I think uh, Haley's a brilliant person. I think I, whenever I speak to her, um, uh, if I wasn't doing this group, she would have been a person that I would have been at least interested in having conversations about this subject. So I think I also get my own motivation from her. Shucks. Oh, you guys. <laughs> um, so, and Haley, have you, what kind of reactions have you uh, heard? So also mostly positive there was especially during the war and after the war um over the summer in gaza um for understandable reasons there you know i it was we got some discouraging responses um and it's i learned that dialogue is a political stance um and that not everyone wants to take it, especially in the, at least in the Jewish diaspora. And it's totally fair, you know, when the conflict is happening over there, 10,000 kilometers away, and it's very real there. And here we go home from our discussions every day and feel safe and have dinner. Um, you know, some people just don't feel that that's the right way of going about it. That's why we want to be proactive about something. Um, but we need to figure out what that something is. So it's really a new group, and the idea so far is to just come together to discuss and to define who you are? 
Um, I, I'm not sure if it's that personal. It's for sure the confusion about what's going on overseas mm-hmm. um, has to do with the fact that we're not there and we don't go through what people there go through. That's not our context. But we hear about it. Mm-hmm. And it, it contributes to our way of thinking. It contributes to our identities, how we form them. So on some level, it's personal. However, we do want it to be, we do want to create a space into which people feel inclined to come in and say what they have in mind, um, be part of this conversation. And uh, as Haley says, humanize the other and sort of know other narratives that are going on. Okay. And as young women on a university campus today, I think you both go to Concordia, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you feel that with your peers that feminism is a dirty word? Or is it something that the general uh, population, uh, not necessarily people that are in your group, are are open to? Or do you feel a lot of resistance to that term? Um, I mean, I can speak for myself on campus. I'm comfortable calling myself a feminist. I wear my consent is hot pin everywhere and I'm proud (laughs) of it. Um, And yeah, I'm in a pretty liberal program. It's communication studies at Concordia and feminism is hot topic. And um, yeah, so I'm comfortable with it. And I think it has a pretty positive stance. Yeah, campus. Nice. If I were to say, if I were to speak to people in sort of in more religious communities, um, they would, like I know women that are perfectly, they they fit sort of the persona of a feminist, but they feel that feminism in the past has um, sort of left them aside just because they choose to practice certain things or they choose to be religious. So in that way, I think Hmm. the label has some negative connotations Otherwise, mm-hmm. the ones that are informed, there are, there are new waves, there are um, new thoughts, feel included and want to want to contribute um, in that way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, a feminist, femi- feminism or being a feminist in the way um, that it's passe, the conversation is over, we have our rights. I think it's also, at least amongst non, maybe amongst people that are not informed or they're not there's just it's just not something that comes into their uh their studies they just say it's passe it's it's already so it's not so much that they're against it as that they think it's irrelevant to us here in today in this context some a little bit am i putting words into your mouth no no i think (laughs) i agree because if if and because i think about it if i didn't um if i wasn't in in religious studies and i didn't come through uh, readings of religion through a feminist lens, or I didn't have professors that were feminists themselves, um, I think I would behave as <laughs> sort of if I if I was in a context in which men were getting I don't know in which I was feeling a male gaze or in which I was feeling somehow on some level oppressed. I would react that way, but I don't think I would go as far as to say I'm a feminist. To label it. Yeah, I don't think I would. Uh, Mm-hmm. you know, put that framework on it. Okay, so you've been influenced by your studies a lot. Yes, quite a bit. Quite interesting, a bit. Yeah. interesting. So um, let me ask you maybe one or two last questions. Is there anything that you want to bring up that I haven't asked about? Not that I can think of yet. Okay. I w- yeah. Yasmin? 
Mm. No? Okay. <laughs> I always like to ask that because who knows, maybe there's there's all kinds of things that you want to talk about that I don't even think to ask about. So I just like to ask that in case. Uh, I'm curious to know um, who are some of the people, whether they're men or women or whoever, who inspire the two of you? My friends. Um, yeah, I my friends and just living the experiences of being a woman in Montreal, I, the, the community that I'm in, whether it's, you know, good or bad experiences, I've had them all. Um, I, I'm, I am quite inspired by them. They're the ones that made me feel comfortable calling myself a feminist. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, many people, but I would definitely have to put it on one of my professors. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, uh, usually f- feminism, in a way, I always thought thought it was a, p- a positive. I mean, I, I definitely know that a lot of um, um, things that I have access to or opportunities that I can um, delve into as a woman now is due to feminism in the past, is due to opening up certain conversations and making noise about them and sort of raising awareness about that. But I always thought it was... It always seemed like there was some arrogance to it, or there was some harshness to it, mm-hmm. which in and of itself is an anti-feminism thing. Because when you think of a feminist woman, you think sometimes wrongly you think that it's some uh, not man-hating, but sort of someone who's always angry. But anger is okay. Yeah, and angry <laughs> is okay. So um, loud. I'm being enlightened at, at the same time. <laughs> but when I one of my professors, she's. A feminist, and but in, I thought in the most humble way. Who's your professor? Let's Dr. Her... Clark. <laughs> Dr. Clark, she's great. Okay, let's give her a shout out. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Clark. Yeah. She teaches in the religion department at Concordia. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Um, but actually, you, if I think if I had taken other other courses, I think a lot of the women in academia, especially in well, that's what I'm exposed to in the religion department. They have to deal with this. They have to deal with old scriptures. They have to deal with old sort of addressing very difficult issues because um, uh, it's the nature of their job. And they often have to grapple with these things, uh, how to address um, past or even current, in some, in some cases, um, issues in an accurate manner, but also in a way that doesn't disable ca- criticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always uh, no. It's always a fine line to to figure out how to how to critique, but also how to salvage things from right. uh, from all of our traditions that are problematic from every uh, every walk of life, whether it's religion or our political histories, whatever it is. It's always hard to find the good, but if we want to continue and if we want to be part of communities, we have to. So it's amazing. I'm. Uh, very happy that you guys started this group up and uh i wish you a lot of success thanks so much and i hope that you'll both come back on to shtetl on the short wave in the future i would really love to have you of course thank you so much thank Thank you you so much Haley and yasmin uh that was Haley fursker and yasmin filali baba of the muslim jewish feminist alliance at concordia university and Haley. Um, and if you want to like our Facebook page, you can do that too by just searching on Facebook, Muslim Jewish Feminist Alliance.
Exactly. Do it now. Facebook. Facebook and feminism. Facebook. Yes. Okay. So we're going to be back on Shtetl in just a couple of minutes to talk about this um, issue of Gamergate. Some people might have heard about that, uh, of women in technology. Uh, we're going to be talking with William Robinson and with Miriam Verberg. So stay tuned and we'll be back. This is a group called Epicorus and the song is called Nana Alcinina.
Er hat sich Städtel auf den Shortwave auf CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. We're back on Städtel on the shortwave. It's 11.30, and this is CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. And today's show, we're talking about feminism, and uh, this segment is going to be about women and technology and video games. And we're talking with William Robinson, who's a Jewish Montrealer and a PhD student at Concordia University Center for Technoculture, Art, and Games. William Robinson, welcome to Städtel on the shortwave. Thank you. So uh, you want to tell the listeners where we're talking to you from? So I'm in Santa Cruz, which is just south of San Francisco, California. And what are you doing there? I am a visiting scholar for the month uh, at the University of California, Santa Cruz, at the Interactive Games Studying Research Group. Interesting. So I want to start by asking you if you can tell the listeners briefly, what is Gamergate? So Gamergate is actually a hashtag. Uh, It's a... At, on a very basic level, um, and relates to a series of, I would say, debates and harassments in the video games world. It started around uh, July, and what happened was a jilted lover of the game designer Zoe Quinn decided to spend an inordinate amount of time recording his partner's conversations mm-hmm. and then release them to the general public on the Chan system, which is where people speak anonymously on the internet. Hmm. And from there, a whole bunch of individuals decided that Zoe Quinn had had an unethical relationship with this man named Stephen Totillo, who is the editor-in-chief of Kotaku, one of the internet's most important video game reporting websites. And they decided that because she was in a relationship with this video games journalist, and she was a video game designer, there was unethical behavior at play. And so these Gamergate people decided to uh, create this hashtag and launch a campaign to rid bias in uh, video games journalism. At least that's what they claim. Uh, It turned out that to deal with Zoe Quinn's um, perhaps uh, bias-inducing relationship with Steven Totillo, they uh, sent her repeated uh, sexual harassment threats, uh, threats of rape. They called her father at her home and told him that his daughter was a whore, and they did pretty much nothing to Stephen Patillo. Uh, and in the end, it became clear that Gamergate was just another misogynist movement to try and undermine the presence of women in games. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gamergate continued and is still going on right now, uh, but that's sort of its inception. Some people might have heard about this and others might not have. What is the most recent uh, manifestation? What happened in in Utah this week? So um, one of the repeated targets of Gamergate has been a woman named Anita Sarkeesian. 
she, in 2012, raised uh, $150,000 to create videos um, called Tropes versus Women, where she would explain how women were being misrepresented or exploited in the games industry. And she has been giving lectures in a public sort of circuit for a while now. Uh, and at Utah State University lecture that she was going to give uh, very recently, um, a threat was made for a Montreal-style massacre mm -hmm. in which everyone in the audience would be shot to death, including Anita Sarkeesian, for attending the conference presentation. Uh, because, again, like the Montreal-style massacre being referenced, there is a deep seated hate and misogyny um, present. So Anita uh, suggested that they stop all weapons from entering in the, in the room, that, mm -hmm. that the police come and just allow the lecture to continue with a weapons ban. But it turns out that in 2004, Utah State uh, passed a law uh, explaining that no institution could produce any kind of requirement that would infringe upon the Second Amendment, that is, people's right to bear arms. So the police and the university were unable to stop anyone coming to the talk with guns. Meanwhile, there was someone threatening to shoot everyone in the audience. Hmm. So Anita had to cancel the talk, uh, and many people uh, sort of started an uproar about this, and rightfully so, because the Second Amendment had effectively quashed the First Amendment free speech. Wow. So how are people reacting where you are? Like, what, what is the reaction to what's happened, and how do people feel um, this is going to affect the, the video game industry? Well, I must say there's quite a bit of hope amidst all the um, distress. So while it's certainly clear that there are a series of disturbed individuals um, who are uh, very upset, there's a lot of awareness coming about as a result of Gamergate. This is being reported widely across the news, and many allies are coming out of the woodwork, I think. Okay. Uh, and this has been promising, I would say. What is, does your work the, um, with video games involve feminism? Is this something that you write about and study as well? Um, so that is certainly part of what I do. Um, I actually just published an article this morning about, uh, at askmen.com about this very topic. Um, and it's more part of my everyday and outward-facing work uh, in the university. When I publish um, academic texts, uh, feminism is always in the sort of background and informs my practice, but is never the sort of direct, uh, has not been so far the direct target. Okay. Um, yeah. So why are so many men seemingly in the gaming industry or the people who play the games upset by women who make games or who critique them? Um, I can explain a possibility, okay. so it's not clear. Um, so outside of just a general rape culture and misogynistic culture that we live in, um, games have been something for a very long time. They have been tests of strategy and dexterity, um, and they have been doing this for 40 years and have built an audience that's very attached to them. And that audience has been, by and large, men, in part because men have been the marketed demographic. So video games, which were tests of skill and strength and strategy, 
were marketed at men, developed a community of men. Those men then went on to make more games after they had played them, to make more games for men. And so this sort of vicious cycle of manly gameliness came about. Okay. And very recently, I would say like 2007 would be like a very good date, but maybe even a little earlier, video games started emerging as something different than these tests of skill and strategy. They have been representations of deep emotional trauma. They've been working on using game mechanics to be less about uh, play, although they remain games, and more about communicating an idea through uh, a system. And there have been really great works exploring alternatives to what I like to call men shooting men in the face. Uh, (laughs) And and these uh, include, like, the struggles of marriage, uh, the struggles of... Uh, hormone replacement therapy, hmm. uh, what it's like to be a lesbian in the Wild West uh, in the future. Okay. So, like, all topics are now being broached, and you have this community of men who are seeing games change, and they are upset about what's happening to their medium, and they think that they're being betrayed by a games industry that somehow owes them something. Hmm. And you can see this in, like, blog posts, There's a famous one where this person uh, sent an open letter to BioWare, which had recently made um, gay relationships possible in their video game, and said, you have forgotten your core demographic, this man argued, Hmm. the straight male gamer who buys all your games, right? And says that this is like a travesty and that they should reconsider doing this in the future. And BioWare responded, Uh, you have no idea what you are talking about and do not understand that a majority does not mean gets additional rights. Um, And basically told this man to check his privilege and to um, go away. Hmm. Um, And so these these aggressive men who are worried about their um, games medium, um, and there aren't, I don't know how many there are. Nobody knows. Like, they're very largely anonymous. Um, There could be thousands There could be hundreds of thousands. I doubt there are millions. Okay. Um, Let me me ask you one last question. You're somebody who plays video games. What's your experience with them? How do you, you, do you enjoy them? And do you feel like there's a difference between being a player, a consumer of the games, and being an academic who studies them? Sure. So I play a wide variety of games, um, and I enjoy playing um, recent independent games quite a bit. So a lot of um, the glitz and glamour of the large studio games uh, is lost in these smaller titles, but in exchange they get to explore all kinds of risky and artistic uh, possibilities in games. That said, I also like playing the very popular games. Um, and at no point am I ever wearing solely my academic hat or my player hat. I'm kind of stuck in this in-between loop, uh, and I I don't mind it at all. It has made me more critical of games, and there are games that I would have enjoyed once that I no longer play, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's a bad thing because there are games that I would have never played that I now play and enjoy greatly. Okay. William Robinson, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Shtetl, and I hope we get a chance to talk to you again in the future because I know you are making some pretty interesting games yourself, so I want to talk to you more about that. Thank you. Okay, take care and have fun uh, in Santa Cruz. 
Will do. Okay. <laughs> really appreciate you having me on your show. Okay. Bye, Will. Take fun. care. Bye. Bye. So that was William Robinson, and he is a PhD student here at Concordia University in Montreal. And we're going to be back with uh, an interview that I did just this morning, right before the show, with Miriam Verberg. And she's uh, a, she makes games herself, and uh, she lives in Toronto and is a very cool and funny woman. And uh, I'm excited to play the interview for you. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes on Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. on Stettel and that was video games by Drizzle White and Larry Delaney and I was pretty amazed to find out how many songs there are on this planet that are called video game uh and there's it's like a genre or something and but mostly they're all from the 80s anyhow this uh is the interview that I did this morning with Miriam Verberg uh Miriam Verberg is a games maker uh, she produces games and other technology. She lives in Toronto, and she tries to shape experiences that help people feel good about themselves and about the world. So this is uh, Miriam Verberg. Welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave. Thank you for having me. Thanks for agreeing to, to come on the show so last minute. You were the perfect guest. I wanted to ask you, start by asking you, what conference are you at today? Oh, I'm at a conference called Gamer Camp. It's in Toronto. It's Toronto's only dedicated indie game conference. Okay. So... I'm excited. We're speaking about our game Long Story and about choice. What uh, What's your game Long Story about? Long Story is a, a dating game. It's it's queer-friendly, so it, when you play, you can choose to date any gender that you want. And it's about, it's helping, it was meant to be for teens, but we're finding many people are playing it. But it mostly is romantic, and it helps talk about player agency and how to have consensual relationships, basically. How does it's it... also a mystery. It's a mystery. Okay. Well, everything's a mystery about relationships, so it makes sense. That's true. <laughs> um, so how does it work? Like, how do you play the game? You play the game by, um, just a sec, I'm walking further away from the street. You play the game by, a, it's, a, it's a visual novel. So the way visual novels work is that um, it's, it's basically a story, but at certain points in the story, you're offered options, sort of how you speak to somebody or what you choose to do in the story. And those options subtly change the outcome. So you're more of a driver than you would normally be in a story. And so the game part is sometimes, for some players, it's figuring out the best way to do the story. And for other players, it's just about exploring what can happen. 
Okay. And so how did you get into producing video games in the first place? I've been making internet things for a really, really long time. And then when I moved to Toronto, I got a job at a company that made games. And I had never made games before, but I found the whole process so fascinating. So we made little games for to go with TV shows on you know, the family channel. And so I made little tiny games. And I just thought it was such a neat problem. You know, how do you make something playable as opposed to just understandable? Mm-hmm. And so after I stopped working at that company, I decided to make my own games independently. And then I also really wanted to think about how young women are sexualized and how to create media products that stop doing that, but still allow women to have agency over their desire. Hmm. That's interesting. So, like, what's an example of a game where you address that issue? Well, so in long, so there are dating games already okay. on the market. And so the first thing was that I went out to a, a get-together for gamers, and somebody was showing me one of these, and it was just so horrible. I mean, it was about, you know, making the right dish so that your date was charmed so that he wouldn't break up with you. Uh-huh. So it was kind of heteronormative and shaming, and mm. there's one where you can't be caught kissing people because if you're caught kissing, then you're slut-shamed, and they really reinforce some negative patterns. Mm. And so I thought, well, the first thing I'm going to do is make a dating game where actually the reason you're dating a person is because you actually like that person. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I'm going to do is make it so that you can choose who you want to date instead of being rewarded for dating the right person. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so that, that was the first two main issues. And then we're going to tackle some of the tougher ones about consent and, you know, choosing when and when not to engage in, in flirtations uh, a bit later down the road. Okay, that's so cool. Um, so you're a member of a group called DMG Toronto. Uh, can you tell us yes. what the group is and what it does? Sure. So that group was started, I mean, I made my first game, another very small little one about climbing the corporate ladder with them to learn how games to learn like the ins and outs of actually doing the coding to make games. And so they do workshops and they hold social events and they, they're doing a Halloween fundraiser. And they just try to make it really welcoming for people who have never tried to make games before. So to both learn the, the actual pro, like, process of making a game. Uh-huh. And then also to, uh, if they can, um, you know, get those games out into the community if they feel comfortable doing that. And DMG stands for Dames Making Games? That's right. Okay. Um, and is it, have you found as a woman who makes games, have you found it at all an alienating world or was it difficult for you to get into it or most of the people that you're encountering uh, men? What has your experience been in this world? That's an interesting question because I think, I think it really varies from case to case. So for me, I started making websites and web pages in my, in my, when I was in my 20s. And I also, because I've been a feminist since I was about 14, I always really focused on working in lady-friendly spaces. Mm-hmm. So for me, I have not experienced a ton of sexism, but I'm also a bit of a test tube case because my first job ever was working in Canada's only uh, feminist new media center, Studio XX, which uh-huh. is in Montreal. Uh-huh. And I was there for three years. And then I went, you know, immediately after that, I went to work at Atwater Library running a digital literacy program for kids. Again, not really a space where sexism is going to run wild. <laughs> so, so I've been really lucky because at no point have I ever worked in an environment or been part of a culture where I felt like I wasn't welcome. Okay. But I don't think that's the case for most people. So why do you think uh, it's not the norm for women to play or to make video games? Well, 
So I think that's also a little bit of a misperception. Okay. So I don't think it's that women don't make or play video games. I think we have an understanding that video games are the kind that you have a big console in your house and that you use a controller, and it's usually one that involves, like, running and shooting. But if you, like, actually broke down the gaming market into computer games, educational games, mobile games, um, and then also console video games, the console video game market is just one percentage. That is, I would say probably there are, there's still probably like 40% females in that market. They just don't talk about it. Mm. But if you added up all of the different markets, women are quite consistent and very present. Like mm-hmm. there are many more mobile gamers that are female than there are in the console, I think, in the console market. Again, I don't have, I wish I had numbers off, my, off the top of my head. But we're building a mobile game because we know that our game, or we hope that our game appeals to both genders. So we didn't want to put it in a console. Okay, so a console. Can you tell me what a, like, what a gamer is and, and what the different categories are? Because I clearly am somebody who does not play video games anymore. I used to when I was a kid, though. <laughs> yeah, well, so yeah. Also, if you counted people who said, yeah, well, I used to have a Nintendo and then I just stopped. I mean, then the number spikes dramatically in favor of everybody has always played games, right? Mm-hmm. So a console is, is like an Xbox or a Nintendo or a PlayStation. And then a mobile game is anything you play on your phone or on an iPad. And then a computer game is something that you might play on a website or you might play it, you might download it and install it on your Mac or on your, your PC. Okay. And those are the sort of three main categories of digital games. Okay. So... And, uh, yeah. Like gamer, solace is, I guess, so- is one of the contested terms, but... I don't, I tend to use the word audience instead, because I think it's, it's easier to use audience, because then you're just talking about, why are there always trucks? I'm sorry, I'm trying to stand outside where there's no truck. Because you're in Toronto on a busy you, street. That's impossible. <laughs> so, yeah, so a gamer kind of implies that there's a culture around what you're doing, and then maybe you hang out with other gamers, and you might chat on boards about the games that you like to play. And I think one reason that it's not necessarily recognized that many women play games is that I would say, you know, mobile gaming doesn't have many cultural artifacts associated with it. Mm. And in that, long story is kind of different because we have a Tumblr and people write Tumblr all the time. So if we set up a forum called longstorychat.com, we would have people coming and talking about the game. Okay, because that's an important part, I guess, or one aspect of, of playing games is talking about it and having a community around it. Yeah, and I think that's where Dames Making Games comes back in. So we're helping create that community around talking about your games in a way that I hope is, is productive and helpful to people who are just getting used to the whole concept of making a game. Okay. So, so the idea, like the reason that I wanted to do the show today on this topic is because of what happened with Anita Sarkeesian and the right. whole Gamergate situation. How did you feel when, when you heard about what happened to her this, uh, this past week in, in Utah? It's pretty appalling. I mean, it's not, yeah, the whole thing has been really emotionally, I think, draining for most people working in games, you know. Whether or not they identify as feminist, it's a really terrible thing to see your industry become famous for a controversy that involves sociopaths. Um, mm-hmm. And I say that with laughter, but I'm serious. So, yeah, I just, I thought, I think she's very brave. I think she was incredibly smart to pull out. I think it's really depressing to me that all of these articles that talk about women being threatened and being forced to leave their homes or being forced to cancel appearances. There's never a follow-up article talking about what the repercussions are against the people who make these threats, mm-hmm. which creates an atmosphere that there are no repercussions, mm. which then I think fosters those acts 
being continuing and people thinking, well, it doesn't matter. You know, free, free speech is less important than the right to bear arms, unless it's my free speech, in which case I get to say whatever I want and scare whomever I want. And, they, you know, they use a tagline that I find just perplexing where they're like, especially in the States, I don't know what they would do in Canada, where they're like, the FBI is on this. And I'm like, I don't think it would take the FBI. Like, put somebody on the job. You know, you don't necessarily, like, you can treat them as terrorists, but it seems like you're not doing a great job treating them as terrorists. So why don't you just treat them as garden variety felons and give them fines? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really depressing to me because I, I don't think it's fair that people should get away with that kind of behavior. And we don't, as a media culture, we don't show any, we, we show tolerance. Hmm. And this uh, this has been going on. It's not just this one incident that just happened this week. It's it's uh, like an ongoing sort of threat and harassment against women who make games. Not and that's not your experience, which is amazing. And it's amazing that there are things like DMG Dames Making Games in Toronto and environments like Studio XX where women are are producing and and getting involved in technology in in great and safe and uh, encouraging environments. But that's clearly not the case for everybody. Um, so what do you think the reason is that so many men are getting upset at women who are producing video games? That is an interesting question. I think, I mean, yeah, Sirius Pony, a, a woman who is a user experience specialist, uh, her name is Kathy Sierra. And she, when I was in 2006, when I was all about blogging instead of games, she was hounded from the Internet for writing things about I forget about how she handled comment spam mm-hmm. and uh, trolls. And so she wrote a really interesting post about it, basically saying that once you've reached a sort of high watermark in, the, in terms of the level of attention people are paying to you, so she says once enough people are buying and drinking the Kool-Aid you're selling, that's when people who have a problem with women having social power come out of the woodwork. Uh-huh. So I think I've been lucky in that the work that I've done up to now has been relatively behind the scenes. Like nobody... I don't speak at any conferences. I certainly don't have that big a presence on Twitter. So it doesn't, you know, nobody knows who I am. And I have never posted a single tweet with the Gamergate hashtag for reasons of personal safety. So mm. literally, no, like, you know, I'm not in that world at all. And so I'm pretty safe. And that's been a conscious choice. Mm. But if you, if you want to, you know, if you, you know, in my dreams, long story takes off and we sell hundreds of thousands of copies. And I don't know what would happen then. I really hope that you know, in nothing. Like, I really hope that if, if I become well-known, I will still stay safe. You know, my suspicion based on other people is that that will not be the case. Hmm. And so Kathy's, Kathy's point is that as soon as you have a level, of, a level of influence, then people start hating you. But as long as you can labor in obscurity, then you're not a threat to the fact that men's voices and men's opinions count more. Hmm. Okay, I want And I agree with her. Okay. Um, that's, I mean, it's sad. I guess it's like that in a lot of industries, but it's really depressing. And uh, anyhow, um, I want to I ask you just uh, two more questions. First is, in, in your bio on Dames Making Games, it says that the intersection between technology, health, and a sense of belonging has long been a concern in your work. What, what is the connection between those three things for you, in your opinion? Oh, God. Can't I just write fancy sentences? <laughs> okay, wait, was it, what was it? The intersection of what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And a sense of belonging. <laughs> it's yeah, like what's the connection between technology and and health? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, for one thing, we spend so much time engaged in technology tools now. 
Mm-hmm. And we use them so much for both developing our sense of who we, who we are, I think, expressing who we are, and also, like, you know, to a certain extent, if you have a Fitbit or if you have a phone that you'd keep with you at all times and get a little bit nervous, like, they're impacting, like, technology is impacting our ability to be healthy people, both psychologically as well as physically. Mm. And so creating tools, there was a really interesting, I'm just going to quote other people's right thoughts, but there was a really interesting article about how coders who write programs for the Internet should really be careful about allowing their clients to tell them to put things in, like, why don't you make it so that when somebody goes to this shopping cart and chooses to buy a book, they're going to automatically have a book envelope and a bookmark added to their shopping cart without them asking, and then they will have to pay for those things if they're not smart enough to know how to take them out of the shopping cart. (gasps) And that's called dark patterns of programming, and it happens all the time. Hmm. So if you do, and if you look at games as dark patterns, like as a, an example of where programming can follow dark patterns, and you go back to the dating game, if you create a, a dating game where you have to date the hot chick, or you, as the, or you as the chick have to date the sexy, handsome man who's very successful, and you do that by making yourself pretty, and he woos you by buying expensive things, then that's a huge dark pattern we've just put into our game. Hmm. And so every time you make a choice as a designer, as a technologist, the question is, how do I make this good for people and how do I make this fun for people as opposed to just how do I make this fun for people and how do I make my money? Hmm. Okay. And I wanted to ask you about uh, your the, another game that I read about that you produced, Having It All. How does... Sure. <laughs> that's a great title. What's the, game, what's the game about? How does it work? Oh, God. It's about how I'm 37 and I have no babies. Uh, <laughs> I devoted my life to my work. And <laughs> so it's a bit... It's a, it's a platformer. There was all these articles that came out about two years ago about how women couldn't have it all, you know? Mm-hmm. Sheryl Sandberg wrote that article, and, and uh, you know, people were talking about, like, how can you have a career plus also have children, and what is this leaning in thing? And, and all I could think about was that it's a myth, and, like, nobody gets to have it all. And also that it's, like, a really insidious, again, cultural dark pattern where we expect women to both want to have it all and then also to strive to do these impossible things and then to feel sad when we can't do it, as opposed to being really satisfied with our capacity to build lives we enjoy. So the game is basically, it's a much simpler game than that. It's just a a platformer, so you're a little office lady wearing nice heels and and a pencil skirt, and you basically jump up and down the corporate office building to get higher and higher to the boss room. Okay. And as you're jumping, you have to stamp on babies that are getting in your way. Come on! Are you joking? No. And when, the, and when you stamp on the babies, they go, and then they die. Miriam, so. are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> where do people, like, where do people see or play or get to experience this uh, game? <laughs> I think, I think, uh, having it all is on, is on a, the website Stencil, which is the engine that I use to play the game. And then it's also on my own personal website, which is called uh, bloomdigital.to. Okay, what was the it's first just a website? a little tiny flash game. A stencil is S-T-E-N-C-Y-L. Okay. And, and then bloomdigital.to is my website. Bloomdigital.to? Okay. Yeah. That's your website. Yeah. So people can find out about what you do there and about your games yeah. and everything there. Okay. Yeah. And because you're also, you have a lot, of other, uh, a lot of other sides to you as well. And hopefully we'll have you back on Shtetl to talk about the other sides of you, which are not surprising considering how you just described having it all and that you're also like trying to do stand-up comedy. 
because <laughs> that that's pretty hysterical to me maybe because I can yeah. relate I don't know how other people <laughs> what other people would think about it but um so my last very last question is where do you see the future of women and uh and gaming like oh I think this is just like a giant it's like you know it's a big uh it's a big like kerfuffle before everything calms down you know I don't I don't think that this idea that there's I mean I, I feel worse for film I'll be honest because, I mean, we've had films since the early parts of the 20th century. Women are still deeply, deeply underrepresented in that market. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and I think to myself, I'm like, they've had like 100 years, and they are not fixing that problem, whereas gaming is relatively recent, and we're already having the biggest fight to kind of figure out what we actually want to see in this industry. Mm-hmm. But at, at, on the one hand, I'm upset about it. It's deeply emotionally draining. On the other hand, having people come out and say that this is just disgusting and we don't want to see it, and we want to know that this this market, this, uh, this media product that we all love so much, isn't associated with this kind of misogyny makes me really happy. You know, like, the reality is that these people who think that women should shut up in games are a tiny part of the market. They're a tiny part of the audience. You know, they don't really represent the whole industry. Okay. So we'll deal with them. Okay. <laughs> you know, she says, snapping her fingers. <laughs> Very optimistic. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Miriam, thank you so much for coming on to Stadel on the Shortwave and have a great time at your conference. Thank you for having me again. It was really fun. So that was Miriam Verberg, a very funny and interesting woman. And uh, that takes us to the end of Shtetl on the Shortwave for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. And we'll be back in two weeks with more alternative underground Jewish arts and culture for your listening pleasure. And we're going to go out with a very spiritual song. It's by uh, an Israeli quintet called Profeti de la Quinta. They're going to be singing uh, Italian music, uh, including Italian Jewish music from the 16th century in Montreal at the Shara Shemayim Synagogue at 7.30 on October 20th. So uh, go to the sharahashemayim.org website if you want to have information and get tickets to the show. And uh, we'll be back on the Shara in two weeks. Thanks for tuning in. Love, love.